Nafisa, it's time for our podcast. Can you hurry up? Taz, I'm coming. Jude has the Hoover on. Oh, Jude, no Hoovering. Are you ready to go to bed? Stay with you. You can't stay with me. You have to go to bed now. Let's go to bed. Yeah. Good night, Good night, Good night, baby. Good night, children. Let's play Lego. Sorry? Five minutes. Come on, let's Good night, go to bed. Good night. You can't stay with me. Yalla. You need to stop playing. What are you playing? You can see me in the morning, okay? I'm Nafisa. And I'm Tasneem. Grab a cup of tea or coffee and some snacks and join us for a chat after hours. Just two Muslim mums kicking back, having fun. And talking about life, relationships, family, motherhood and more. Welcome to the madness that is our lives. Salams and welcome. Hope everyone is well. Today's episode is about when somebody leaves Islam, how they can find their way back. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the UK. But while we all know how many Muslims there are in Britain, around 3 million to be precise, what people are rarely aware of is the number of Muslims who actually leave Islam. Today we will be talking to Selena Hanif about why she left Islam and then how she found herself back again. We'll be touching upon what is it in our community that doesn't seem to be supporting young people when they have a crisis of faith. And what should we be doing more of? You know what, Nafisa, this is such an important topic. Massive. Um, Massive, yeah. And I'm so glad that we're talking about it today. But it also scares me a little bit as well. Okay, why? I think it's because obviously it's one of the, it's it's something that all of us as Muslims, as an ummah, needs to worry about. And we do worry about it, right? But it's something that's so intricate, like people have so many reasons and experiences and they must go through so much to get to the point where they want to leave Islam. And so, yeah, I'm just really worried about it. And I think this conversation is important. I am a little bit nervous as well. It's a massive responsibility. And I think it's important we have these conversations because it's one of those conversations that people don't like to talk about or they don't like to admit it happens. We have got to ask ourselves, you know, if Islam is the fastest growing religion in the UK, what's being done to support the new Muslims? But then also what's being done to support the existing Muslims? You know, we just take it for granted that our faith will stay with us no matter what we do, because it's a given, you know, in society, we don't want to talk about our weakness of Iman. You know, for example, we've had influence is taking the hijab off or we've had Muslim gays. Yeah, it happens. The problem is whether we want it to happen, whether we agree whether it should happen, it happens and that's reality. So I think it's important that we talk about it. It's important that we start to think about the ways in which we can support Muslims, irrespective of what level of iman they have. So would you say that it's something fundamentally wrong within the Muslim community or is it up to us as individuals to support the Muslims around us who we think might be struggling? So, you know, with the community as a whole, do you not think like at the masjid now they provide so many courses and they provide this lecture and that lecture and then the imam at Juma time is talking about this and that. But a lot of it is ritualistic things. It's more like stereotypical topics that they talk about, but they don't talk about these kind of topics because for some reason they, they seem to be scared of it. And if, I don't know, we'll find out today when we speak to Selena as to what caused her to leave Islam. But I think as a community, we hush things 
things up. So I think it's important for us as individuals, if we all as individuals supported someone we knew who was not as practicing as we would like them to be, or we felt like they were teetering, you know, on the edge, maybe we find ways to reach them or, you know, connect with them somehow and, and, and see how we can support them without being judgmental. If we all did that individually, it will become a collective. And, you know, and then the community, like the masjids and the wider community can support that, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think definitely the masjids play a large role in this because obviously they've got a congregation. They've got mm-hmm. thousands of people attending every day. You've got an audience. And so the message that you share with that audience and spread to that audience is so important. But sometimes they're just so stuck on talking about the same old thing over and over again without really looking at the issues that are affecting Muslims today. Yeah. Individually, I think it's so, like you said, without judgment, it's so hard to try and reach out to somebody without offending them unless they come to you first. Yeah, that's true. And also, I mean, you think about it. Do you know anybody in your life that you felt was not fully practicing or have left theme? I mean, what do you think? I mean, obviously, uh, so you mentioned something about people taking the hijab off and it being obviously a a sign of a weakness of Iman, perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. And I do recently, I know loads of people have taken their hijab off, but I've been too scared to ask anybody why, because I feel like, Firstly, it's so personal, you know, it's such a personal thing. Even though wearing hijab is in such an obvious way of showing your iman, it's not really something internal, isn't it? It's an external way of showing your iman. So when one takes it off, you think that, okay, well, you've stopped doing it maybe publicly. So maybe that gives everyone the right to say something. But I don't know, I just, I feel scared. Like, I don't want to ask because I just don't want to look and seem intrusive. I don't want to seem judgmental. I feel like it's none of my business. And I think that is a huge issue in our community today as well, like being too scared yeah. to talk to anyone because if you, you're you're called the haram police the moment you say anything, even if you say something to someone close or with the best intentions and you're not judging, you genuinely want to know and want to help, you still come across as judgmental. My husband came home one day and he said, he was gutted. He looked really upset. And I said to him, what's wrong? And he said, he just left a father at the masjid who was crying his eyes out. And it was he, he raised his son single-handedly. I think he lost his wife at an early age. And he was always close to his son. And he could see that his son was changing, you know, leaving the deen in terms of clothes, leaving the deen in terms of the way he was acting, the way he was, you know, going out at all hours at night. And, you know, the father just didn't know what he was doing, but he's clothes kept getting tighter and, uh, you know, something wasn't sitting right with the father. And then one day, the I think he was 18 or 19, the boy just sat his dad down and said, Dad, I'm gay, I'm moving out, I'm leaving Islam. You know, he's, he's just leaving. And, you know, his dad came to the masjid like a madman because he didn't know where else to get that solace from and that kind of comfort. And he just said, I don't know what to do. You know, he just felt like he's, he's just lost his son. So, you know, I don't know how the masjid dealt with that, but it's these are the kind of stories that happen. And then, you know, it's the first step to leaving the deen completely because they're not accepted in society. I actually have, a, I know quite a few people who have left Islam wow. um, for various different reasons. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, they're all guys. The parents are quite practicing. You know, they're, they're obviously their world were completely turned upside down and they mm-hmm. really struggle to reconcile with the fact that two of their sons had left Islam like that. Um, and everybody tried and everyone tried to support them. And But by that point, it was just too late. So I think that's another thing is the is when you try and reach people as well. Like you need to perhaps reach them before it gets to that stage. 
rather than when it's too late. We can't just take for granted just because somebody physically is not looking Muslim or doing things that are against Islam immediately, oh, they've left the deen. You know, they have left some aspects of the deen, but I think we've got to be really careful not to judge them and, and doom them like that. You know, I think a lot of our community members do do that and that's why they don't feel supported. But anyway, let's have that conversation with Selena and let's see what the truth of the matter is. Selena Hanif is a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis. Selena is also a divorce coach who helps South Asians recreate, rebuild and restore their lives post-divorce. She's also a full-time mom and a home educator to her four boys. Okay, Selena, when I read this, I was just gobsmacked when I saw that you've got four boys and you home educate them. (laughs) I have two boys. I've been educating them in lockdown for the last three months and I'm dying already. Before we begin, I just need to know how you manage to look after four boys without sending them to school. (laughs) I need to know this. Yeah, I I think those who um, sort of home education has been enforced upon are in a very different place of those who choose to do it by choice. We sort of ease our way into it. We do our, um, you know, research and we prepare ourselves. I'd say about one or two years before, so we, we do ease ourselves into it. But I appreciate those who had kids that were attending school and all of a sudden, without any preparation, they were sort of forced into it. It would be very challenging. If, if I was in that situation, it would be very challenging for me too. Um, how old are your boys? My boys are nine, eight, six and four. Wow, mashallah. Mm, I have the yeah. six-year-old and the four-year-old. That's it. I'm like, how do we stop them from killing each other every day? Um, so, mashallah, I mean, it's amazing what you're doing. Selena, just to start the conversation that we're going to talk about how you left uh, Islam at one point of your life and then how you returned. When was the first time you felt disconnected to Islam? I would say it was in my teen years. And I think the when I when I left Islam, it was sort of the tip of the iceberg. So I, I do feel a lot of factors were in play from a very young age. I'm the youngest of seven siblings. That there's a 14 year gap between me and the and the second youngest. Oh. So mum took me to Pakistan when I was about four years of age for a better education, which meant being away from family, including my father. And um, looking back, I think I had to conform quite a bit from a young age. And um, I sort of struggled to figure out where I fit in, especially with going back home and having to a completely different culture and having to fit in a new language. My, my, my siblings were adults when I was born and they were settled in their own families. My nieces and nephews were my age, but I was second generation while they were third generation. And I wasn't sure whether I was Pakistani or British because I'd gone to Pakistan from such a young age. Not being able to fit in from a very young age might have played a part in that. So just thinking back to your childhood and not fitting in, when was the first time you connected that with Islam? I didn't really connect. that. That sort of hindsight now, I try to look at the patterns of um, my childhood and how that shaped me and how that then led to me wanting, really wanting to sort of discover who I am and where I fit in. In my teenage years, I came back to England, but by the time I'd come back, there was no relationship with my with my siblings because there'd been a decade gap between, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really see them that often. And by the time I came back, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So my parents had me quite late. My mum was 45 when I was born. 
So by the time I reached my teen years, they, they were they were getting old and the, their illnesses were sort of cutting up on them. And by mid-teens, I was their full-time carer. And that, that, took, that put a lot of pressure on me. When I was in uni, I thought I'd explore Islam. Up until then, Islam wasn't really imposed on us in, in, in the family. My siblings had a very liberal upbringing, so it, it wasn't imposed. But I, I was curious about Islam and I attended some lectures. And that was the point where I, again, didn't feel, not only did I not feel like I fit in, but I, I felt some sort of judgment from people. Maybe because the way I was dressed, or I, I, I appeared, I didn't appear to be practicing. I didn't obviously look externally. I didn't look like a Muslim, so they weren't sure is she Muslim? Is she of another faith? And just that vibe of not not being accepted. And a few words, I sort of sat down. It was an Islamic lecture. I thought, okay, this is going to be good. This is supposed to be religious, and it would be good, and it would be welcoming. But my experience was totally the opposite. And that was the point where I walked out. Selena, when you uh, walked out of that lecture and you kind of had that, you know, that feeling that you didn't want anything to do with Islam or not part of Islam as, you know, you'd seen it at that point. I mean, what were you going through internally? Did you did you speak to anybody about it? Did you um, look into other faiths? Like, what was what was going on in your head then? At that point, I didn't have any Muslim friends, so I couldn't turn to anyone in my faith community. Even the area that we lived in was predominantly sort of Sikh, Hindu and there weren't many Muslims there. We were probably the only Muslim family in that area. I felt I felt rejected by Muslims. I think, and, and I think that might have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, with all my other baggage from childhood. I didn't want to conform anymore. My siblings had already denounced their faith, so it wasn't a big deal if I did too. I wasn't going to be challenged or rejected by my family for my choice. And then I, I tried on other faiths for a while. Wasn't I, I couldn't didn't really fit in there either. So I spent the next four years exploring different faiths, different cultures. I had a really good friend who came from a Hindu background, and I spent a lot of family time with her, with her and her family, and that gave me a sense of um, you know family and sort of just just hanging out with them, with her, with her cousins, with her uncles, aunts. And I think that's something that I probably always wanted from a young age because I was separated from my family at around age four. And um, I might have sort of experienced separation anxiety from my siblings, and especially my father. I do remember as, as a child, I, I missed my father a lot. So having that, that sense of being part of a family, which I felt when I whenever I visited my friend, made me sort of explore Hinduism and sort of, I, I felt accepted, I think, in, in, their, in their community. So I started spending more time there. I'd take part in their rituals. And I think my, I didn't so much convert, but I was, um, it appealed to me for, because I, I felt accepted on a social level. So it wasn't, me leaving Islam, it wasn't because of what, what was logical or what made sense. It was more for social acceptance. So do you think it's safe to say then, had you had a more supportive and connected family and had you had Muslim friends and a strong Muslim community around you, do you think then perhaps you would not have explored other religions and felt a disconnect with Islam? I have met people of the Muslim faith or who have left Islam who did have that sort of upbringing and they've also made the same decision. So I'm not sure if, if, if yeah. it would have been any, any different any different for me. I mean, for many Muslims that I've spoken to, 
what they say is um, that they feel there's a lot of punishment and pain in Islam instead of mm-hmm. in, instead of enlightenment and openness. They experience they they experience faith through fear, pain, misery, and a lot of enforcement too. They feel there's more rituals than reflection. And even I mean, I as a home educator, I've I've purchased children's books and I've brought them home, and they are filled with detailed descriptions of hellfire with visuals mm-hmm. that even scare me as an adult. Yeah. So I think they, they a lot of especially in this in my family, my siblings experienced what what from when I've spoken to them, they've said that the expectations are too high, that what's expected from them is almost perfection. You you're wearing too much makeup or you're wearing the wrong clothing. Mm-hmm. You you're not supposed to travel without a man. You shouldn't speak to people of the opposite sex, and you know the list goes on. So when others outside of Islam appear more accepting of you, it makes it challenging not to sway that way. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned about your um, siblings had also denounced Islam. Were they mm. for similar reasons to yourselves, or did they have? Did they all have different reasons? Islam was probably imposed on them more than it was on me. The fact that I was being brought up in a Muslim country. I don't think my parents or my mum, especially, she didn't feel the need to impose religion on me because we were surrounded by Muslims and Islamic culture. I think my my siblings didn't have a great experience with the with their mosque and the way they were treated at mosque. Mm-hmm. The the punishments and the restrictions. That's not what they 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 didn't like that. They 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 did um, go to a school that was predominantly white, but that was in the 1970s, so that was that was pretty common there. But I, I think their reasonings would have been slightly different to mine. Selena, I wanted to ask you about, because obviously you're just telling us your story, from, and we're talking chronologically. So yeah. when, it, um, when it came to um, getting married, um, did you marry a Muslim? Yeah, by then I'd reverted. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd spent four years exploring other faiths and other belief systems. But the, the way I reverted, that, that, was, that happened in a strange way and unexpectedly. Things things were very tense for me as a teenager at home, being a full-time carer. So I remember in Ramadan, just to escape um, the house, I would catch a bus. And the only place that would be open at like 10 o'clock at night was the masjid because of the Tarawi prep. Oh, wow. So I'd catch the bus into town, which was like the closest mosque. And I'd just put my hoodie on and I'd, I'd just wait there and just take two, two three hours out. And then I, I wouldn't pray. I'd just sit there and watch people and just hear what was going on. Um, had no intentions of praying. And I did that for the whole month. I'd catch a bus, which was a half an hour journey, and then half an hour journey back. And towards the end of Ramadan, I just, I, I felt like this, this was for me. And I said, no, I, I, I want to come back to the faith. Um, it was nothing, it wasn't to do with Muslims. It wasn't you know, an experience that I had with, with, with the community. I was still very much um, alone. But yeah, that, that was that was an amazing experience. And towards the end of Ramadan, I, even even I was surprised to think that I, I wanted to accept Islam again. But it's just, I just had a change of heart out of nowhere. And Alhamdulillah, I've been, been Muslim since. And even marriage, I, when I got married, I was practicing and I married a Muslim. Mashallah, you know, it's just, it's given me goosebumps just uh, hearing how you were called back to Islam, if you like. I wanted to touch upon uh, something you'd said uh, previously about punishment and how Islam is taught in such a doom and gloom way. 
So I know, you know, belief in Islam is meant to give us peace. It's meant to give us comfort and solace. And it's a safe space between us and Allah. However, you know, even us growing up, as we've lived it, as we have witnessed it in our communities, more often than not, and you, you mentioned the masjid as well, the focus of religion seems to be more ritualistic rather than a reflection or, you said, enlightenment. And growing up, we heard more about hell and punishment than we did of rewards and Allah's love and mercy. Although I do believe this is now slowly changing, you can add to that whether you think in your experience if that's changing. Do you think hearing more about Allah's love and if we had more fluidity in the way we practice our deen, would it have any impact on the number of people leaving Islam or would it have had an impact on you had you been growing up in an environment that reflected this? I think so, especially for younger children. I mean, I personally, I, I hardly talk about hellfire to my children because I think to myself, well, if, if, if anything, God forbid, if anything happens to them, mm-hmm. they, they will go straight to Jannah. So I want to put my, I want my focus to be on, on Jannah and what you get in Jannah. And once they reach a certain age where, you know, hellfire on them might might be a possibility then they can look into it in more detail but when we teach children about hellfire in so much detail it creates that fear and uh, you know it's sort of hardwired into their into their brain which on a subconscious level will always be there with them Mm -hmm. even even as adults so i definitely think in the first sort of 10 years it should all all be about love and a lot of mercy and compassion and you know heaven and the attributes of Jannah and things like that, and there shouldn't be that much focus on on hellfire. I've had books Absolutely. where that are so detailed. I mean, even that there are like there are images of shaitan and oh, wow. and, and people burning in in the fire. I, I looked at, I looked at the cover of the book and um, I can't remember the company, but it seemed like a reputable one, and quite a few people had recommended them, but. I couldn't even sell them or give them away to charity because I, I don't want to make money out of this because I, I don't believe that children should be exposed to any of this. You know, it's so important that whenever we give any kind of literature to our children yeah. to kind of, you know, check that first. We can't just think because it's an Islamic book for kids, it's going to be all right. It's, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the case, is it? Absolutely. But I absolutely agree that, you know, we should teach our children talking about Allah's love and Allah's mercy. I mean, my six-year-old, I've not mentioned anything about shaitan or hell to him, but he goes to Arabic school on Saturdays and he actually came back and he mentioned something. And I was quite upset because I wasn't ready to tell him that and Mm. I wasn't ready for him. I feel like it was kind of robbing him a little bit of his innocence and I just didn't feel that he needed to know some of the things they started telling him at that point. So it's quite tricky because we can do what, as best as we can, but then they hear things elsewhere as well. Yeah. What age would you then say is the right age to learn about that, the fact that shaitan exists? It's such a massive part of our faith. So do you think it's only after the age of 10 or before? I think the, my, my children know the, the concept of shaitan and mm-hmm. the, whisper, the whispers of shaitan, that how, how shaitan can influence us. Anything that I feel that would instill fear in them and make them fearful of Allah and punishment over Allah's mercy, I, I yeah. refrain from. And I'll probably go to around age 9, 10, depending on what sort of questions they ask. And I think mm-hmm. that they're, matured, they're, they're maturing at different ages as well. So I'll take that into account. My, my eldest, if I was to have a conversation with him, he would be more understanding. Whereas the younger two, I would probably leave it a bit longer for them. 
I asked the same question to you, Taz, um, because you mentioned that you were upset that obviously that decision was taken out of your hands. So what age do you think you would tell? I think I kind of agree with what Selena's saying in terms yeah. of shaitan obviously exists. And I think we can, you know, we can start with my six-year-old. I feel confident kind of mm-hmm. broaching that topic, especially if he does ask me questions about it. But I think it's hellfire. Yeah. I think the concept of hellfire, I know I'm not ready to talk to him about that now because he has a million questions about everything. He's not just going to be like, oh, it's heaven now. What's inside hell? Mm-hmm. Why do people go to hell? Okay, I'll say bad people. Who are the bad people? What happens when they go there? Am I going to go there? Is this person going to go there? It's going to be like that. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. honestly, I just don't feel like I'm ready to have that conversation with him. Yeah. I don't think that he's of that. He's intellectually ready to to hear that as well. But I don't think I can pinpoint an age. I think all kids develop and mature differently. And I think, and I'm sure he's going to hear a lot more things and I'm going to have to learn how to deal with those kinds of questions as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing, maybe us as parents, you know, we also need to be taught and equipped with how to kind of what language to use when we, when we talk to our kids about these things. So I definitely know that I don't know. Because yeah. My parents were quite traditional. My, my dad, he wasn't religious at all until I was about four. And mm-hmm. then he came into the deen at that point. So when he came into the deen, he was so like excited and he used to come to the mosque with us to learn how to read Quran. He was the only adult amongst a bunch of four and five year olds, you know, mm-hmm. learning how to read. And, oh. You know, so he was really excited about it. But I, there's so many things that he'd say and I'm looking back, I'm like, what the hell, man? <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> you know, like he told me that, that shaitan eats with his left hand, right? Yeah. Mate, we're in England. They all eat with their left hand in England. Do you think I'm not going to go to school and tell somebody that? Which I did. <laughs> well, I did. And I told my friend that, you know what, the devil eats with his left hand. And then she told the teacher, and I was seven years old, and the teacher in front of the whole class completely like, humiliated me and said to me, did you know that disabled people eat with their feet? What do you have to say about that? Oh I was absolutely God. mortified. I'm sure now that a teacher wouldn't respond in that same way. Now they're just called prevent. But, yeah. you know, and I was just <laughs> absolutely mortified. And so and I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to really have this conversation with my dad now. There's no point. Yeah. <laughs> but with, with my kids, I'll definitely like not, you know, make sure that I don't say that kind of thing to them. You know, I'm just going to add a little uh, anecdote uh, here. Uh, I've got a niece. I won't mention her name because she'll be mortified. She was only three years old and uh, she saw a lady. um, I think she was wearing a miniskirt and she just in front of everyone you can think of. You know, there was everyone there, you know, all the family. And she, she looked up and she pointed at the lady and she said... You know that lady, you know her legs, it's all going to burn in hell. It was really embarrassing for my family. They were just like, you can't say that. Where did you learn that? But, you know, kids pick up things, you know, from... Yeah, from and they have, a, they have a very curious mindset. So any little thing you give them, they'll just run with it and yeah. their imagination will just explode. <laughs> yeah, my family was mortified. You know, they, they don't agree with, you know, people exposing their legs as their personal belief. But, you know, they didn't expect her to embarrass them like that. <laughs> but anyway. It's just so important, isn't it? How we how we raise our kids and what language we use and everything is just really, really important. And it's it can be a bit of a minefield, you know. So, Selena, so obviously you're bringing up your children at the moment. So you said you focus a lot, obviously, about Allah's love and mercy. What else do you do to ensure that they feel kind of safe in their deen? 
at the moment, it's more about etiquettes because I feel etiquettes play a huge part in the dean. And once they sort of perfect that, then the rest will sort of flow naturally. And in terms of faith, all I do is uh, I, I'm an example to them. I don't, I don't sit, that, sit them down and explain what, what Dean is, but through me, they will see what, what's important, like the prayers. And that's with me, that there was a moment in Pakistan, and I feel that this, that also con- contributed to me returning to Islam. Um, we had lodges that lived in the same house as us in Pakistan. So we lived upstairs and they lived downstairs. Beautiful family, very practicing, and they had they had the perfect etiquette. Amazing, amazing people. Until this day, I consider them like my own family. Mm-hmm. I they, they they never taught me about Islam. They never um, told me to do things a certain way because Islam says so. But they demonstrated Islam in their character. I, I would watch them pray. I remember. I remember as a child, I'd wake up earlier hours of the morning. I'd walk into a room where, in this family, there was there was a man that I that I referred to as as my grandfather, Dada Buji, even though he wasn't my biological father, uh, grandfather. But I'd walk into this room in the dark, and all I'd see is his glow in the dark thusby. So I'd know that he's 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 woken up for the morning salah, the hajjah. And he's just sat there reading his dusty, and that that image of him just stuck with me. Uh, and besides that, that as a, a whole, a family as a whole, mm-hmm. their etiquette, their treatment towards me, the way they accepted me as their own, that that really stayed with me from childhood. And those memories uh, that I built with them sort of stayed with me. And I think those, even to an extent, impacted my decision of wanting to return to Islam. Mashallah. You touched upon adab, you know, etiquette, character. Growing up, all I ever heard my dad tell us over and over again, and it was like a mantra, he just said, the heaviest thing that would weigh on the scales is your character, your adab. I never fully understood what that was until adulthood. And it's true, you know, how you are, even our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, it was his character that people uh, saw and fell in love with, and they just embraced Islam without any uh, discussion just seeing how he was and his manners and his example. Absolutely, yes. Dina, you mentioned um, earlier on in the conversation that you've had, like you've met lots of people who have left Islam for various different reasons. Um, have any of them um, also found their way back to Islam again? And how did that come about? Some have, yes. And I think it was just something big has to happen in their life. So I, I know some sisters who were in an abusive marriage and they sort of got out, they got divorced or they got a fuller and just to be able to sort of shake their world a bit, they, they want to do something drastic. We find often when people go through relationship breakups or divorce, they'll they'll change their hairstyle or they'll change something about themselves drastically. And that's just to sort of cause um, an interruption in the pattern so they can sort of look towards a new life or snap out of that pattern that they've been stuck in for years or decades. I understand why I left Islam. I don't regret it because it came with a lot of lessons. While I left Islam and while I was on my own journey and when I came back to Islam, I had learned that I'm, I'm not going to take my Islam from Muslims, from the way they treat me or the way they behave. That Islam is a very personal thing to me and it's between me and Allah. And now that I've, I've already been on that journey of leaving Islam and coming back, 
I know how important it is to me. I know how easily someone can leave Islam. It can be something very insignificant that will that will just tip the, the person over and make them leave Islam. I decided that I'm not going to base my opinions of Islam or of my creator uh, based on how people treat me or how people are. And when I was going through my divorce, I held on to that. I had already experienced that and I knew that no matter how bad things got, religion is the one thing that I'm not going to let go of. And I do feel that had I not left Islam when I did and learnt the lessons that I needed to, perhaps my circumstances post-divorce would have led me to leaving Islam and I would have not left Islam on my own. That would have influenced my children as well. And maybe that would have resulted in my children leaving Islam and not having anything to do with Islam. So I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I experienced all of that when I did. And I find a lot of wisdom in that. Alhamdulillah. You know, Allah works in mysterious ways. I don't know if you've heard of an author called Alia Salim. She co-authored a book called Leaving Faith Behind. And she said that the main factors which contribute to the loss of faith is education for her. Like the more educated she was, the less she believed in Islam. Though she was practicing growing up, her inquisitive mind was the cause of her leaving Islam. For me personally, I find that quite hard to swallow because I found growing up, the more I got educated and the more I learned about, let's say, biology, science or uh, any other such knowledge. And I, I could see the beauty and design of Allah, how he created things. And I could find him everywhere. And it cemented my faith rather than question it. So would you say education had a part to play in reasons for leaving Islam? Most of the cases that I've come across has predominantly been for social acceptance. As you've mentioned, that the more I've, I've educated myself, the more I've appreciated my, my faith and my creator. I have heard scholars say that when, specifically when you're studying theology, yeah. then that can sometimes influence you and make you question your faith. I actually studied applied theological studies. It's what I graduated in. And a lot of people said to me when I took a philosophy component as well, and they'd said, oh, no, it's not good for you. It, it's going to make you question everything. And, you know, when we did debates against God, for God, you know, whatever debate we did, I had to think critically. And I actually won all of the debates I was involved in, doesn't matter which side I was on, whether I was on the Muslim side or the non-Muslim side. But the point was, it didn't make me question anything. The more I questioned, actually, the more I realized, how can I escape the signs of God? I couldn't see beyond it. And I actually envied people like medical people, um, doctors, scientists who studied the world and studied the human body. And I just thought, how lucky were they to find God in knowledge? It's interesting to know that it was mainly social acceptance and social reasons that led you away from Islam. As Muslims right now and today, what can we do to help support people we see struggling with Islam and their faith and they're having an identity or a faith crisis? Sometimes it can be very quick to judge. And I think if we approach every situation with a curious mindset mm -hmm. and know that whatever we're seeing, there's many layers underneath that that have contributed to whatever decision a person has made, whether mm -hmm. it's leaving Islam, whether it's removing your hijab, whether it's, you know, coming out as a gay, lesbian. 
there are many layers underneath. And I think when we become curious about why a person is doing something rather than being on the attack and just jumping to judgment, then I, I think that that can make people who are struggling with their faith feel a bit more at ease. I think it's the fear of being judged and being rejected plays a huge part. Everything you've been saying, Selena, I think what's coming through really clear is that a lot of the issues within the communities comes from the community itself. So it's more about people rather than Islam and Allah. It's more about the mistakes and the attitudes of Muslim people than the faith itself. That seems to be the issue. Have you seen a change in the mindset of Muslims today compared to, say, how they were when you were growing up as a teenager? Or do you think that it's still the same and there's still a long way to go? Now I'm a lot more involved in the Muslim community, so I'm, I'm seeing where the issues are. Growing up, I wasn't really part of the Muslim community. I mean, in Pakistan, it was very different. People are a lot more laid back because your whole environment is more or less, in those days, was Islamic. So there was no pressure or there was no fear of someone leaving Islam or being influenced by other people or other communities. I think what I've noticed is there is discussion around people leaving Islam, but those who I've heard talking about these topics, they will say that it's the Western society that's influencing these people, and this is why they are becoming misguided. When we start blaming external factors, we have no control over the change that we want to see. The only way we're going to be able to change what's going on in our community and what Muslims are facing is once we take responsibility for our role in all of this. And our, our role in all of this is that we need to change the way we, we treat people, the way we judge them, and the way we label them. We need to stop blaming other factors. Yes, they may play a small part, uh, the, the Western culture, not the non-Islamic culture. That might have some influence. But the main thing is not being accepted. That's all what most people want. People just want to be accepted. And if we're not going to accept them, then we'll look elsewhere. Most of the Muslim people that I know that have left Islam, it wasn't because of Western influences. It was because what was going on in our very own community, in our mosques, in our homes. So we need to take accountability for our role and see how we can change that. Selena, thank you so much. This has been a really, really important and a really insightful um, conversation, I think. And I feel like the main thing that I'm going to take away from this is just how important it is that we as Muslims, as individuals and as a community just really steps up and supports people who we think might be struggling rather than judging them or jumping down their throats. Just like you said, to keep an open mind and to ask the questions to find out why people might be behaving in the way that they might be and just to really kind of accept them and show them you know the love and support that they need at that time so thank you thank you so much for this and i hope inshallah you know our listeners will also benefit from this topic as well yeah, I want to also add, Selena, thank you so much. It's definitely made me reflect on how I'm going to be talking to my children, uh, you know, being aware of language. And definitely what Taz just said now about, you know, supporting people that we see struggling rather than coming from a judgmental place. So I think accepting them and just being there for them will go a long way in trying to help them stay true to their being. It's been amazing talking to you girls. And I've learned so much from you lot as well. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Right. Take care. Take care. Take care. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Nafisa and Tasneem. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show. Don't forget to subscribe, share and review. 
Follow us on Insta and Facebook at NotAnotherMumPod, as well as on Twitter, mum underscore pod. You can also listen to all our pods on www.notanothermumpod.com, as well as on all your favourite podcast platforms. Should we go to bed now? <coughs> really? I can't Ow. cuddle you. I can't fit in your bed. Yes, they are forever. Good night, children. Say Allahumma. Allahumma. Bismika. Amoto. What are here? Allahumma. Bismika. Amoto. What are here?